This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com forward slash free books to download this book on PDF. The title of this book is Dominion and Common Grace, The Biblical Basis of Progress by Gary North. Copyright 1987, Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas. Chapter 9 the inside man. Now he that betrayed him gave them a sign, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same as he, hold him fast. And forthwith he came to Jesus, and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. Matthew twenty-six, forty-eight and 49. Van Til argues, as I do, that increasingly over time men become more epistemologically self-conscious. They become more consistent intellectually with their first principles of life. Christians become more consistent intellectually with the Bible's view of life, while non-Christians become more aware of the differences between their views and the Bible's view. Van Til assumes that this increasing epistemological self-consciousness results in more consistently led lives. Christians will live in greater conformity to the standard of perfection set by Jesus as the Holy Spirit guides them into all truth. I agree with Van Til, but Van Til also argues that non-Christians will become more consistent in their actions, thereby increasing their power over Christians. I disagree. I argue that they will not become more consistent in their actions with their underlying intellectual presuppositions, for those presuppositions lead them away from dominion and power and toward death. Thus, for the sake of their underlying ethical presupposition, the hatred of God and His people, power-seeking reprobates refuse to live consistently with their anti-Christian philosophies of life. Thus, the ethical impulse is primary, not the intellectual. This raises a major problem. Where does the reprobate learn more about the hated ethical system of Christianity so that he can rebel against it more effectively by borrowing from it? There is the testimony of the work of the law in each man's heart. Romans 2, 14, and 15. But there is also the increasingly visible testimony of Christianity. This assumes that Christianity's influence is spreading and beginning to affect every area of life. Why should it be spreading? Because more Christians are living more consistently with the biblical principles of dominion. So they have the general testimony of the work of the law in their hearts, plus the specific testimony of the lives and effects of Christians. Deuteronomy 4, 5-8 This is the city on a hill testimony. Do they have anything else? Apostates as Antichrists Ray Sutton has pointed to another important testimony. The presence within the camp of the covenant breakers of former members of the church. This is the testimony of the apostate. There is a former inside man who was close to the church and saw it in action. He knows its strengths and its weaknesses. He then puts this information to work for the devil. Judas is the best example in New Testament history. He was one of the twelve. He was a thief, and he therefore saw to it that he controlled the disciples' money. John 12.6 He was the organization's treasurer, probably one of the two most important of all organizational posts. John P. Roque, a former Socialist Party worker of the 1930s, 
and an assistant to President Lyndon Johnson in the 1960s, remarks, In the 1950s and 1960s, friends would call me up as a consultant, unpaid, on whether or not to support some cause which appealed to their sense of social justice. My first question was always, Who is the executive director? And my second, Who is the secretary treasurer? Jesus was obviously a, a nondescript man in appearance. He could disappear into a hostile crowd and not be located by his enemies, Luke 4.30. The Jewish leaders thought it was worth 30 pieces of silver just to hire an inside man who would recognize him and identify him to them. Judas is only one example. There are many. Satan is the archetype. An angel with access to the court of heaven even after his rebellion, Job 1. He had seen God, but he rebelled. He became the instigator of rebellion among men. Then came Cain. He was an inside man in every respect, family, church, and civil government. He knew enough about God's required sacrificial system to violate its terms and bring an agricultural offering rather than a blood sacrifice. He slew his brother out of resentment. Genesis 4. Ham was an inside man who illegally entered his father's Noah's tent and saw him naked. He immediately went to his brothers to tell them what he had seen. Genesis 9. Esau became the father of the Edomites. Edom. Genesis 25.30. Also called the Edomians, who remained Israel's enemy right until the fall of Jerusalem. God hated them from the beginning. Malachi 1, 2 and 3. They were forced to become Jews by the Jewish ruler, John Harkinus, in 129 B.C., in the mid-first century B.C. An Edomite named Antipater became the supreme power in Israel, and his son Herod became king. Thus began the reversal. The elder brother Esau now ruled the younger brother Jacob. It was the Edomites who first began the slaughter in Jerusalem in 70 AD, before the Romans sacked the city. The night of the slaughter was the last night that anyone could have fled Jerusalem in safety, just before the invasion began. Absalom was an inside man, inside David's family. His advisor, Ahithophel, the Gilanite, had been David's advisor, 2 Samuel 15.12. Their plans were overthrown because of David's friend, Hushai, the Archite, who pretended to be a defector and who gave bad advice to Absalom, which Absalom took despite Ahithophel's pleading, 2 Samuel 17. Also serving David as his insiders in Absalom's camp were Zadok, the priest, and Abiathar, the priest, 15, 32 through 37. The false prophets who advised the evil kings of Israel and Judah were obviously inside men. The Jews were a constant source of trouble for the early church. They were close enough to the covenant to understand it. They stoned Stephen. They had Paul imprisoned. They cooperated with the Roman government to suppress the spread of the gospel. Acts 5, 24 through 32. Apostasy as rebellion. When Satan goes out to deceive the earth, where will he get his recruits? From inside the church. The inside men and women will supply the troops who will surround the church. Their goal will be to destroy the church. They will have lived inside the covenant community, and they will have learned to hate it. 
but they will know it well and know its weaknesses. This is what makes the inside man so dangerous and why he is important to the opposition. Because the inside man understands the truth, he can serve as an agent for the forces of Satan. When the Orthodox Trinitarian faith triumphed in 4th century Rome, the Arians went out and evangelized the tribes surrounding Rome. Later, those tribes conquered Rome militarily. In modern times, some of the most ferocious opponents of Christianity have been former church members or students in church schools. In 1729, Jean-Jacques Rousseau began his studies for the priesthood at a Roman Catholic seminary. He was expelled a few months later. Adam Weishaupt was the founder on May 1st, May Day, 1776, of the revolutionary conspiratorial group, the Illuminati. At the time, he was professor of canon law at the University of Ingolstadt in Bavaria. May Day, of course, is the traditional celebration day of the ancient chaos religion when children march around the phallic maypole. It is also the chief day of celebration in the Soviet Union, the day they parade their tanks and missiles in front of the Politburo's reviewing stand. You might imagine that the Soviets would celebrate the October Revolution as their number one Memorial Day, but they don't. You might also imagine that the Western media would occasionally comment on this seeming oddity. They don't. Maximilian Robespierre, the voice of virtue, who beheaded so many during the Reign of Terror in 1794, had been a prize-winning graduate of the local school, church school, in Arras, France. In 1775, at the age of 17, he he was even selected by the school to give a welcome speech to King Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette. At Paris, he studied at Louis Le Grand, a college of the University of Paris. He spent much of his time reading Enlightenment literature. He even visited Rousseau once. The unsuspecting priests awarded him a special donation of 600 livers upon graduation. He was their star student scholar of the classics. The Communist Counterfeit Consider the phenomenon of communism. Karl Marx and Frederick Engels had both been fervent Christians in their teens. Marx was baptized at age 6 in 1824 and confirmed a decade later. At age 16, he wrote an essay on the union of the faithful with Christ. In it, he affirmed, quote, The history of peoples teaches us the necessity of our union with Christ, end quote. Quote, and where is there expressed more clearly this necessity for union with Christ than in the beautiful parable of the vine and the branches, where he calls himself the vine and calls us the branches? End quote. Quote, Who would not willingly endure sorrows when he knows that through his continuing in Christ, through his works, God himself is exalted, and his own fulfillment raises up the Lord of creation? John 15.8 End quote. Within three years, he had rejected Christ and had become the enemy of God. He wrote a short, pathetically boring play in imitation of Shakespeare called Wallanem, an anagram for Manuelo, Emmanuel, God. Its characters are Lucindo, Lux, Light, and Pertini from Periri to Perish. Wallenem says, Ruined, ruined, my time is clean run out. The clock has stopped. The pygmy house has crumbled. 
Soon I shall embrace eternity to my breast, and soon I shall howl gigantic curses on mankind. Ha! Eternity! She, has, she is our eternal grief and indescribable and immeasurable death. Vile artificiality conceived to scorn us, ourselves being clockwork, blindly mechanical, made to be full calendars of time and space, having no, no purpose save to happen, to be ruined, so that there shall be something to ruin, perished with no existence that would be really living. While swinging high within the stream of eternity, we roar our melancholy hymns to the Creator, with scorn on our brows. Shall the sun ever burn it away? Presumptuous curses from excommunicate souls, eyes that annihilate with poisoned glances, gleam exultantly. The leaden world holds us fast, and we are chained, shattered, empty, frightened, eternally chained to this marble rock of being, chained, eternally chained, eternally and the world drags us with them in their rounds, howling their songs of death, and we, we are the apes of a cold god. It is obvious that he had left the faith. It is equally obvious that he was haunted by the eternal consequences of becoming an excommunicate in a world that passes into eternity, quote, chained, eternally chained, eternally, end quote. He had been an inside man, and when he rebelled, he did so in the name of the religion of revolution, that ancient enemy of biblical religion. Joseph Stalin had been a seminary student in his youth. He spent much of his time reading forbidden books, Darwinian biology, Gogol, Chekhov. One of his schoolmates recalls, quote, We would sometimes read in chapel during service, hiding the book under the pews. Of course, we had to be extremely careful not to get caught by the masters. Books, were Joseph's inseparable friends. He would not part with them even at mealtimes. The vision of Western millennial hope motivated the Chinese communists, a vision that sprang from Christian theology originally and was filtered through the heretical revolutionary sects of the Middle Ages. Mission schools educated numerous Chinese converts to Marxism as well as future black African Marxists. The Four Points Communist theory possesses all four of the most prominent features of future-oriented Christianity. Christianity offers a four-point system of progress. Providence, cosmic personalism, ethics, biblical law, and the self-attesting truth of the Bible. Communists imitate this system and thereby gain the minds of men who seek relief from the cursed world of sin. First, they have a doctrine of progress. The hope of man is in the successful revolution. The proletariat will be triumphant in history. Those who ally themselves with communism, the one true representative of the proletarian revolutionary future, have allied themselves with victory. Second, they have a doctrine of providence. This providence is impersonal, unlike Christianity's providence of God. The Marxist providence is historical, the dialectical process, the laws of dialectical history. Sustain history. A knowledge of these laws gives, uh, gives to the scientific socialist a theoretical understanding necessary to well-timed, historically significant, revolutionary practice. This is a doctrine of predestination which undergirds their hope in the future. There is no escape from the materialist forces of history. Each stage in historical development is inevitable. 
the mode of production creates its appropriate thought forms, and it also creates the seeds of the next revolutionary transformation. Third, they have a doctrine of ethical law. Each stage of historical development produces its appropriate ethics and philosophy. Since the proletarian state of communism is the final stage, proletarian ethics is also final. Since this is the final ethical system, it is ultimate. Proletarian ethics is the ethics of the future, but therefore the ethics of the revolutionary present, a tool of social transformation. Fourth, they have a doctrine of a self-authenticating philosophy. Since all philosophy in the Marxist view is really the ideology of class interests, a theoretical superstructure built on the substructure of the mode of production, then the only final philosophy or final truth is that truth which is built on the proletarian class. Thus, Marxism does not need to appeal to a common ground philosophy of being. There is no common ground. There is no common being. There is only becoming, revolutionary action, praxis, until the victory of the proletarians. Then class warfare ends, and philosophy therefore settles down into permanent truths, because communist theory can offer this comprehensive vision of secular salvation for society. It can complete successfully with Christianity, especially the escapist versions of Christianity. The communist liberation theologian, Jose Miranda, is self-conscious about the ineffectiveness of escapist Christianity. Quote, now the Matthean expression, the kingdom of the heavens, was the only one serving the escapist theologians as pretext for maintaining that the kingdom was to be realized in the other world. Not even texts about glory or entering into glory provided them any support for the Psalms explicitly teach. Salvation surrounds those who fear him, so that the glory will dwell in our land. Psalm 85.10 Hence, what paradise might be, or being with Christ, or Abraham's bosom, or the heavenly treasure is a question we could well leave aside, because what matters to us is the definitive kingdom, which constitutes the central content of the message of Jesus. The escapists can have paradise. To speak of a kingdom of God in the other world is not only to, to found a new religion without any relationship with the teaching of Christ, for none of the, none of the texts wielded by escapist the, theology mentions the kingdom. It is to assert exactly the contrary of what Christ teaches, the kingdom has come unto you, and your kingdom come. The fact that tradition has taught for centuries that the kingdom is in the other world only demonstrates that the tradition betrayed Jesus and founded another religion entirely different. Quote. The enormous appeal of liberation theology in Latin America and on seminary campuses in the United States stems from its ability to transfer powerful concepts of the Bible to the revolutionary Marxist vision. Miranda is correct about the otherworldly emphasis of the escapist fundamentalist and traditional religion. He is incorrect about the supposed communism of the gospel, but it takes a degree of theological sophistication uncommon in Christian circles to pinpoint his errors and overcome them by an appeal to the Bible, without also destroying the foundation of the escapist versions of Christianity. Thus, the challenge of liberation theology goes unanswered by those who have the best alternative in their hands, the Bible but who do not understand what it says about the kingdom of God on earth and in history. The apostate as transmission belt. The Bible describes the fate of the apostates who have been inside the faith and have left. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost 
and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away, to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh, and put him to an open shame. Hebrews 6, 4-6 through This probably refers to the Jews of the period between Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension, and the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. But its description of the inside men of fallen Israel provides us with an understanding of just what they have forfeited, and why they are the great enemies of the church. They seek to crucify Christ afresh. When these people leave the faith, they seek self-justification. They also seek revenge against the gospel message they have rejected and those who preach it still. They take to the enemies of God an understanding of Christianity's vision of victory. They have again and again imparted remnants of this vision and its motivating power to those who were never inside the covenant. We think of Islam. It, too, has the shadows of the four points. For predestination, they substitute fatalism. For a coming spiritual kingdom on earth, they substitute military conquest and in Iran today, revolution. For biblical law, they substitute Qadi justice, the law of the mullahs, God speaking to them directly in the midst of a changing historical circumstances. But this law is uniquely Islamic law, anti-Western, anti-rational. For the self-attesting Bible, they substitute a self-attesting Quran. Thus, they have also become historically victorious rivals to Christianity. The apostate serves as, as a transmission belt of power. He takes Christianity's religion of dominion and implants it into an anti-Christian religious framework. This Bible-influenced substitute becomes a satanic power-seeking religion. These hybrid religions are the transformed heirs of animist, localist, minimal dominion cultures. The escapist religions of individual meditation techniques, or family-bound ancestor worship, or nature worship, or good manners, or monastic isolation, or monkish begging, are transformed into pseudo-Christian religions. Thus the apostate serves as a pseudo-messiah. He is the motivator. He brings a corrupt gospel to those who otherwise might never be motivated to any victory beyond keeping a heart fire burning. The Pre-Christian Spread of the Gospel The history books have covered up one of the most important facts of history, the worldwide trading patterns of ancient civilization. The operating presupposition of modern historiography is Darwinism. Historians assume that with only a few local exceptions, most notably regional empires, man's history has been evolutionary. Occasionally, we find a regional empire that somehow constructed progressive alternatives, but these empires always fell or stagnated. Only with modern man have we, be have we come to a knowledge of the forces of evolutionary progress, and only we have been able to use science to transform our environment on a systematic long-term basis. What would the historian do with evidence that a thousand years before Christ, Celtic missionaries were operating in northern California and British Columbia? What would they do with evidence that in the time of the judges, or at the least in the time of Isaiah, Jews had communicated with New Mexican Indians and had left a stone with the Ten Commandments written in Canaanitic alphabetic, Phoenician or early Hebrew? What would they do with evidence that as early as the days of Abraham, Traders from Scandinavia were operating in what is now Ontario, Canada. We know what they would do, for they have done it. They would heap ridicule on the man and his followers who would dare to present the evidence. The man's name is Barry Fell, 
a retired Harvard oceanographer and self-taught master linguist. His books contain incontrovertible evidence of a worldwide trading civilization in which religious and cultural groups of many sorts were spanning the globe in search of profitable trades and religious converts. Thus, the idea that the ancient world had never heard of Israel is exaggerated at best. To what extent the message of God, God's law, and the restoration of all things actually penetrated ancient cultures is unknown. The work of the law, written in men's hearts, is a sufficient explanation of many of the parallel myths in ancient societies. But as time goes on, the increasing epistemological self-consciousness of men leads to an increasing rivalry between power-seeking empires and biblical civilization. In our day, the chief rivals are unquestionably epistemological first cousins of Christianity. Conclusion As men seek power without God, they must abandon the animism of the past and the nihilism of the escapist present. They must avoid becoming intellectually consistent with their own religious presuppositions. They must instead be infused with a future-oriented, law-governed, highly disciplined alternative to Christianity. The inside man is the agent of this infusion. In summary, 1. Men's epistemological self-consciousness increases over time. 2. Christians become more ethically self-conscious as they become epistemologically self-conscious. 3. Unbelievers become less ethically self-conscious as they become more epistemologically self-conscious. 4. The goal of power is attainable only by external obedience to fundamental principles of biblical law. 5. The self-consistency of Christian ethics and Christian philosophy leads to a spread of Christianity's influence. 6. Unbelievers learn from apostates concerning the techniques of dominion, which they become power religions. 7. The apostate become change agents in Satan's kingdom. 8. Examples are Cain, Ham, Esau, Absalom, Ahithophel, false priests, Judas, and the Jews of Jesus' day. 9. On the last day, Satan will recruit his troops from inside the church. 10. Historically, some of the most effective opponents of Christianity have been former Christians. 11. Examples are Rousseau, Robespierre, Weishaupt, Marx, Engels, and Stalin. 12. Communism steals Christianity's four points of civilization building, providence, earthly optimism, law as a tool of dominion, and the self-attesting revelation of God. 13. Islam also steals these same four points. 14. Ancient cultures were in contact with Israel. 15. The apostate serves as a pseudo-messiah. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit 
reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.